Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning, Advent. Sad to not be with you for the second week in a row. Uh, really, I, I love church. I'm biased, but um, I am sad not to be there and instead coming to you from my living room where I'll be preaching this morning because the whole Kologi crew has COVID thanks to Omicron. We're all doing okay so far. Appreciate your prayers and support. Um, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. No one wants to watch a video for very long in the middle of church. So I'm going to introduce us to the season of Epiphany through um, this beautiful, very, very rich, very dense text from Mark 1, Jesus' baptism. It's in all the Gospels, but we're looking at Mark 1 this morning. And so would you take a minute and pray with me? Father, I pray that um, despite the distance between um, these words and those hearing them, that your spirit would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's no secret that um, my biggest influences as a preacher are Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis. Well, my biggest influences beyond preaching, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And it might be that Keller is the only preacher I know who references Tolkien and Lewis more than I do. Um, but I heard a Tim Keller sermon on this this um, text a while ago, and preachers call it Tim Kelleritis. It's when you hear a Tim Keller sermon and you just, it's like, that's how you have to preach this message. There's no other way. I'm not actually going to do that. I am going to preach my own sermon this morning, not Tim Keller's, but um, this idea of the dance that Tim Keller uses as he talks about this text actually comes from C.S. Lewis, who puts it this way. In Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is that God is three persons, one God. There's Danielle Williams dropping off food. Thank you so much, Danielle. Huge blessing. Um, God is three persons, one God. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, while the exact word Trinity is not found anywhere in our scriptures, the concept, of course, is everywhere, but perhaps no, nowhere more clearly than in this text this morning. At the baptism of Jesus, we have the Father speaking and the Son receiving and the Spirit descending. Three persons, one God. And Keller again summarizes it this way. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity is exploding with life-shaping implications. And the first one is this, ultimate reality is a dance. Ultimate reality is a dance. I'd like to look at this ultimately real divine dance um, as we waltz our way through four steps of this text. Let's look at the baptism, and then the rending, and then the descent, and finally the voice. So first, let's look at the baptism. The first um, eight verses of Mark are essentially a drum roll, I mean, a very important drum roll. But Mark begins by quoting the ancient hope of, of a Messiah who will restore the world. This is from Isaiah 40. And he presents John the Baptist as the one who the prophet Malachi promised would come and roll out the red carpet for the Messiah. And then that's all kind of a drum roll for the big reveal in verse 9, which is, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So the big reveal is the identity of the promised Messiah of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. But then the reveal comes with something of a, like a record scratch. The Messiah was baptized by John? 
Why? Didn't verse 4 just say that John's baptism was one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Yes. And isn't the Messiah supposed to do the forgiving, not get the forgiving? Yes. So the natural question is simple. Why? Why is the Messiah being baptized by John? Shouldn't it be the other way around? In fact, John is asking the same thing of Jesus. In Matthew's account in chapter 3, John asked Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for it is fitting or proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. What an answer. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? It means that this act, Jesus's baptism is the first, well, the incarnation, but among the first acts necessary for God to make the world right, to make the world righteous. This then is step one of the dance. Not that the Messiah needed to repent or needed to be forgiven, but that the Messiah in the incarnation and now in his baptism is making our need his need. He's making our problem his problem. He's doing the opposite of what a really powerful and wealthy CEO might do whose office is on the top floor of a sky rise, who condescends to the lowly ranks below. Jesus has not descended in the incarnation to assert his power over us, but to empty his power on our behalf. His baptism stays the course that really his incarnation began and his crucifixion will finish. It's the self-emptying of God, the humility of God. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what, what comes into your mind when you think about God? I know many of us probably have an impression from our parents or from other religious figures in our life um, that stick with us and inform the way we think about God. I want to encourage you to think about Jesus' baptism when you think about who God is. Think of the humility of Jesus, his kneeling down low beside you in the tired and in the sick and in the, the sorrowful trenches of life. Jesus, God, has come to make your problem his problem. Why did Jesus get baptized? In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the substitutionary atonement. God making his problem, our problem, his problem. What happens next? Step two of this waltz, of this dance, is the rending, the tearing open we read in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. This tearing, this rending of the heavens, we can really only understand it, as with so much of the New Testament, by going to Isaiah, well, the Old Testament, but especially Isaiah and Genesis. Um, this text, this verse, has to be understood in the backdrop of Isaiah 64, verse 1. There, the prophet Isaiah is lamenting that Israel's return out of exile from Babylon is meager. It is not the mighty deliverance for which Israel had hoped. And the prophet recalls the mighty acts of God in delivering his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, how he bared his mighty right arm, and he, he pleads with Yahweh, do it again. We know you're powerful enough to do it, so why aren't you doing it? Please do it again. And this is his prayer as he's praying for God to intercede again into the circumstances that they find themselves in, this sorrow, this strife, this meager return. He says in Isaiah 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So this Old Testament context is kind of like the iceberg below the surface that is really lending weight to these words of Mark 1 that are like the tip of the iceberg jutting through the water. They have incredible weight. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn open. The heavens were rent. Isaiah's prayer is answered. 
God is once again bearing his mighty right arm, as he did in the Exodus. In Christ, a new Exodus has begun. That's the point. So heaven's rending signals the inauguration of a really the kingdom of God coming to earth through Christ. Heaven is breaking in. On January 21st, 2009, Barack Obama was inaugurated as our 44th president. And during his inaugural address, he said these words. He said, the state of our economy calls for action, bold and swift. We will build roads and bridges. We will restore science to its rightful place. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories. And we will transform our schools and colleges and universities to meet the demands of a new age. All this we can do. All this we will do. And the people go nuts. The inauguration of a new president comes with a sense that a new day has arrived, doesn't it? I mean, with each national cycle, 50% of the country starts thinking, you know, utopia is coming through their newly elected king, while the other 50% fears that the new king will single-handedly usher in the apocalypse. And I remember the utopian fantasies of one of my good friends reaching fever pitch upon Obama's election. He was happier than I'd ever seen him. Now, whether or not you loved President Obama or weren't a fan of President Obama, um, 13 years later, we still need roads and bridges. Um, science has fallen on hard times. Uh, our schools are by and large struggling, especially now with COVID. So we can't trust an earthly king to do what only a heavenly king can. The, the perfect infrastructure bill will not fix what is most broken about our country, about our world, about our own hearts. Um, only the mighty right hand of God can intercede in a way that we need him to and fix what we most need to have fixed. Only the, the rent heavens and the solidarity of God with us can do that. Only Christ the King can do that. Only the coming of the kingdom of God can do that. How? Step three of the dance, the descent of the Spirit. In verse 10, we read that the heavens are torn open, as we just said, and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Each week we read the Nicene, we confess the Nicene Creed, and we say that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. And when we um, say that, it's, I don't know, I remember when I was a new Anglican and new to saying the Creed, that always struck me. It's, it's like, I never really thought of the Spirit that way. I think of God the Father as that way. So why do we say that? Think back with me to Genesis 1. The earth was formless and void and darkness was hovering over the face of the waters and the Spirit of God was there. Several Jewish Targums, which are like Aramaic translation interpretations of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, they translate that verse this way. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters like a dove. And that would have been the first place prior to Mark's writing that the Holy Spirit would ever have been referenced as a dove. And so it's, it's uh, probable that Mark is drawing on this when he writes in verse 10, well, when, I mean, he's, he's testifying to what, what happened, but this is the background to help us understand what we're supposed to take away from it. Just as the rending of the heavens signal a new exodus, the descent of the Spirit as a dove signals a new creation story. Just as the dove alighted upon Noah's ark, signaling the end of the floods and the end of death and the beginning of new life, so a dove alights upon and anoints Jesus as the Messiah in whom new life, new creation is beginning. So God is offering us what no president can do for us. He's offering, in the Greek, the, the paraclete, the, the advocate, the helper, the indwelling spirit of God, who the same spirit who descended upon Christ now descends upon us in our baptism and empowers us for life with him. 
Now, without desiring to minimize the importance of presidents for good or for ill, because we all know they can accomplish great good and great harm, um, I don't want to minimize that. But please know that the solution to the decaying infrastructure of the human heart is the Spirit of God. What happened after Jesus was baptized with the Spirit? He goes into the wilderness, and what does he do there? He fights. He battles with Satan. What are your battles? Now, I don't want to make this um, too much about us. Ultimately, this is about Jesus, the king, conquering evil. But in it, we see a principle. Do not battle the evil, the sin, the destruction in your life without the Spirit of God. Are you battling crippling anxiety? Are you battling addiction? Are you battling severe depression or suicidal thoughts or extreme loneliness or, or rage or greed or bitterness or laziness, um, just discouragement? You must enter this divine dance. You must come to know who God made you to be, a child, as we'll see in a moment, a beloved child. And you must know that he's come close to you in Christ, that he has rent the heavens and he's beginning a new redemption story. And you are invited into that story through his spirit, his life-giving spirit to be your advocate and your help. In other words, the death in your life will only be resurrected ultimately by the life bringing spirit of God. Now, there are many wonderful tools to complement the Spirit's work in our life. There's, there's counseling and, and great counselors and therapy and medicine and healthy eating and exercise and, and books to be read, conversations to be had with people. Yes to all of that. But those things must be complements to and tools that the Spirit uses in our healing. You must cooperate with Him as you fight these battles. The life-giving power of the Spirit of God longs to set you free, to give you deep shalom to give you his deep peace. Finally, step four of the dance is the voice of God. After the spirit descends, we read in verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, if you were here for the series I did with Union on Christ, you will um, remember, perhaps, I hope, this important definition that union with Christ means everything true of Christ becomes true of us through union with him. That's oversimplification. It needs a lot of qualifying. We don't actually become Christ, but the benefits that Christ earns for us become ours through union with Christ. So again, Paul's words, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's union with Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So he takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, his benefit is now ours. Now, the battling I just spoke of, it can be really easy to hear that kind of thing as a call to just try harder, to sort of cloak try harder in religious language. Try harder never helped me be less anxious. I doubt it has helped you much. Instead, consider that just as the language of um, rending sends us back to Isaiah and the dove sends us back to Genesis, the language of beloved son sends us back to Genesis as well. Genesis 22, where Abraham nearly sacrifices his beloved son Isaac, but you probably know the story, is spared at the last minute by an animal that God provides. I wrote a 44-page paper on this in seminary. It's a very tricky passage. I will spare you those details, but I'll cut to the point. Thank God that we are never asked to mimic these one-of-a-kind covenant-establishing actions of Abraham and Isaac. That's a horror. But thank God that God himself did just that for us. You know, proverbial wisdom suggests a leader never asks their followers to do what they haven't first been willing to do themselves. And in reading the Abraham story and Isaac, we are stirred by the reality of a God whose eternal plan has always been, always been to freely offer up the life of his own beloved son. 
for you and for me and for his beloved creation. Jesus, the Lord's provision, this perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us. Jesus, more innocent than Isaac was. Jesus, the full revelation of the Father's affection. And as the knife fell upon Jesus, there was no voice that steadied the Father's hand. The knife did fall on the beloved Son of all creation. And then what the prophets foretold was fulfilled by a, a, a sickening stillness. Isaiah writes, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In that moment when Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the viper Satan thought that he had won the battle. But the strike re rebounded. You know, the lethal blow rebounded and the righteous venom of Christ proved stronger than the serpent's venom. And the beloved son re resurrected over death itself, having defeated Satan and buried death and sin in the grave. So no, don't try harder. You're not the, you are not the hero of the story. Rather, allow your heart, like a, like a tarnished piece of metal, to be softened, to be melted, to be reforged by this divine dance, by the love of a God who condescended in humility to be with us and his incarnation and his baptism, to deliver us, to remake us, and to speak to us these true words of who we really are. This is who you really are. Again, everything true of Christ now applied to you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. It was love for you, love for you and I that compelled him to rend the heavens and come down in Christ, to give you the spirit at your baptism and ultimately to offer himself on the cross, becoming and then burying your sin in your place. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Amen. In the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I wish I could be there with you all to say hello and take communion with you. And I will be back hopefully next week. Love to you all. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.